in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melvartis, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my very good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, sir? I am excited to finally be invited to a sci-fi episode. You guys have been gatekeeping that forever. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have. Uh, you're, you're usually <laughs> not kind to them, that's why. But <laughs> but I am also excited. We're going to go back to our roots of West Virginia. Chad and I, you and I are both from the Mountain State, and we're going to have somebody join us from Fayetteville, West Virginia, Mr. Steve Broadwater. How you doing, sir? Pleasure to be here, guys. I'm just happy to be invited. All right. And if, for those of you who don't know, Fayetteville is the adventure capital of the world, man. This, this is, this is, you got whitewater, you got rock climbing, you got outdoor adventure. It's beautiful over there. So a uh, little plug for my home state, Fayetteville, definitely worth checking out. And America's newest national park as of a year ago. Nice. And one of my favorite lawyers. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you never need me. <laughs> All right. So today the xenomorphs are a great movie monster that we're going to be covering here, but was there any other movie monster that really scared you, particularly as a child? That could be just something as simple as something out of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or even a, an animated movie. Steve, is there anything that got you as a kid? The only movie I ever watched as a kid that really, truly scared me to death, scared me to death, and I think made my father regret showing it to me, was I got to watch, I mean, he never let me watch scary movies when I was a kid, but my mom went out of town and I got to watch Poltergeist. When I was oh, like, man. it's a little young. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, dude. He had to check my closet for at least a month. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that really got me. And I, you know, I watched alien and it, it scared me, but I think I was a little older. I was like nine or 10 by that time. And of course, by the time I was old, I immediately watched aliens after that. Mm, that's what we like to hear here. Chad, what about you? Is there anything that got you as a kid? I wish mine were better, but the first thing I remember being terrified of was Sharp Tooth from The Land Before Time. I was taken to the theater and I think I was maybe five. This is one of my earliest memories. It might have been my first movie. And Sharp Tooth scared me to death. I cried in the theater. I also did this one in the theater. And I had a good time with this one. This one wasn't the one that got me. And I'm not saying that you're any less for having gotten it. But The Wizard of Oz Flying Monkeys is what got me. Interesting. Not so much the witch, the the monkeys. All right. I mean, they're otherworldly. You can kind of reconcile the witch, but flying monkeys were probably like blowing your mind at that point. As an adult, that movie still scares me, but not from the monkeys, from the asbestos. It was the asbestos. <laughs> the asbestos snow, yes. <laughs> now, what is the last movie you saw, Steve? I heard you ask this question to on the other podcasts I watch, and I honestly, I'm having trouble answering the question because if it's a movie theater, it was pre-pandemic. 
I don't remember. I still haven't been. That's okay. It could just be what did you see in your living room, even? Buddy, I I haven't been watching a lot of movies, but I did watch Better Call Saul recently. And I know that's not like a hot take. Like everybody says that's great, but it's a lawyer show. And I'm a lawyer. Lawyers don't watch lawyer shows. Doctors don't watch doctor shows. But my God, did they get it as far as accuracy is concerned? Like, I mean, I, I bring consumer class actions. That's a major theme throughout there. And I just finished watching it like a week ago. And I'm still just, now I'm the world's biggest Bob Odenkirk fan. So again, not a hot take, but one I avoided because it was a lawyer show. And that was a mistake. It was. I did not awesome. know lawyers avoid lawyer based media. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like I can't watch law and order. I'm like, that, that's not, <laughs> sudden, just not. And if there were more architecture shows, Russell, I'm sure you could. I don't know. There aren't as many of them. Now, oftentimes characters will be architects like, you know, Ted Mosby and how I met your mother or Mike Brady, you know, like they just are architects, but they're very generically like these are architects. We won't say what they do. It won't affect the plot in any way, shape or form. It's just it is a go to generic field of profession that people just go like, ah, oh, they're an architect. OK. It's a respectable middle class. Exactly. Profession. Sure. You're not a total sucker and dummy, but you're not a genius either. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chad, what about you? What's your uh, what's your last movie you saw? I watched the newest Fast and Furious, so Fast X. And if you've been following the franchise at all, it is ridiculous. And that's kind of what you're there for. So you get what you pay for. It's still fun. Jason Momoa is fantastic. He's just having such a good time. Nice. Yeah. You know what? I actually saw a Bob Odenkirk movie recently as well with Nebraska. You know, Broadwater brought him up, so I was going to go ahead and say uh, it's mostly a Will Forte, uh, Bruce Dern movie, but it's a movie about an aging elderly father figure. He decides to walk <laughs> to Nebraska to collect a scam, which is like a awards-winning ticket saying that he's won millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, his son ends up taking him there just to shut him up. And it's uh, it's an interesting movie. It's got humor, and but also, you know, there's moments of like oh this is why my dad is the way he is kind of thing so uh if you're on a bob odenkirk kick i think it's an interesting movie it's funny you say that russell because i just saw yesterday that he is in a, a new netflix movie that came out about a year ago called nobody and people have been recommending it left and right i don't know if i just hit the algorithm for bob odenkirk but <laughs> apparently it's an action movie with him that is awesome netflix knows what you like they do so until your daughter watches one Pokemon movie, and then it's upset. <laughs> Every time my wife boots that up, I I look so hard to make sure it's either her or the daughters. Don't mess up my algorithm, buddy. Don't right. you? <laughs> right. All right. Uh, yeah, it's just Chad comes running into the room. No, what profile are you on? Oh, my goodness. I can't even remember what it there's it's British royalty, something like that. It's not the crown, but it's something very Bridgerton is what gets thrown on mine all the time. Nice. You know, uh, the Horny Housewives special. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What are we going to cover today here, Chad? 1986's Aliens with an S. All right. Made for a budget of $18.5 it grosses $85.1 million domestically, which is a great return, does even better worldwide, places its number seven on the box office in the year. It comes in behind Back to School, which I'm a Roddy Dangerfield fan, but if you told me that that made more money than Aliens, I would be surprised. That, right. I mean, the 80s was good to comedies, though. 
and it comes in just ahead of The Golden Child. The number one movie from 1986 was Top Gun, which we covered that one earlier. And Aliens here gets a 8.4 from IMDb. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it a lot more. They give it a 98%, very fresh. And the audience score was a 94%. It is an Academy Award winner for Best Sound and Best Visual Effects. It got nominated for five Academy Awards. Best Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, Original Score, and Sound. It is a Golden Globes nominee for Best Actress, Sigourney Weaver, which that's cool. Movies like this don't normally get awards thrown their way for nominations like that. It is a BAFTA winner for Best Visual Effects and nominated for Best Sound Production and Design. Saturn Award winner, eight of them. So it just cleaned up the Saturn Awards, nominated for three more. Remarkably not on the AFI Thrills list, perhaps inexcusably so. You may have some explaining to do, AFI. (laughs) Steve, you mentioned that this one was a hit for you, the first movie that you really put your arms around. When was that you first saw it coming to it? Like, how old were you? I cannot remember the first time, but I know that I, I was right around that 9, 10, 11 age until it had to be around like nine because until about 12 or 13, when I finally like, you know, your middle school, your, your junior high for us and you got other stuff to do. This was like the go-to for just putting on at home when I didn't have anything else to do right in the winter. And they, it, I think I wore the VHS tape out, man. I was so blown away because you had mentioned uh, the other day that you had just finished watching the director's cut. And I'm so used to now watching the director's cut. I didn't remember all the additional stuff they went and added. So I actually went back and watched the original film version. I would say, I think that this, as far as like director's cuts go that add stuff, the director's cut adds so much in that like 20 minutes they added, not just for this movie, but for every other movie in the alien franchise with the uh, background of the Wayland yutani Corporation and all, like the scene before you actually like get into the aliens like being there, the background of the uh, of the corporation and what they were having the families all do there, they really should have left that in for the... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just explains so much more on the current stuff, the Prometheus, even the alien v. Predator stuff that like comes in. Mm-hmm. That little bit of background and that like 10 minute scene that they cut out is wonderful to the whole overall franchise. Do you feel like it's holding up for you as you're getting older, your taste change as you get older? Is it still there for you as comfort food? The only reason I would say not as much is because I've seen it so many times and I can just <laughs> recite every line. But yeah, man, I still got excited. It had been a, a year or so since I'd seen it, maybe a couple of years. And even though I knew it was coming, I was still sitting on the edge of my seat, man. James Cameron brings it in this film and it's so neat to realize he did this immediately after terminator and then he followed this one up with the abyss i gotta go back and watch the abyss <laughs> absolutely we need to cover that chad how about you what was your coming to aliens i got to this really late so our mutual friend john flack top gun episode check him out godfather of this podcast he took it personally that I had not seen the Alien franchise. Mm-hmm. And so, well yes, yes. And we would stay over at his house and he remedied this pretty quickly. And yeah, I, between that and I think he got to Terminator as well because I hadn't seen Terminator. I, I'd obviously heard all of this. If you need to see T2, I, my parents were very strict. So R-rated movies were, were not a thing for me. I loved it. I loved it when I first saw it. I am a horror specialist. So while I love this movie, the original is 
that's my bailiwick. I love Alien. I'm very sad and very angry at Russell for being left off of that podcast. But I love this one too. This is just a very, very different version. Mm-hmm. James Cameron isn't Ridley Scott, and I'm glad he didn't try to be. That's right. And sometimes Ridley Scott's not Ridley Scott either. Oh, man. He's he's had so many misses in recent days. I liked his The Last Duel I liked. He swings big, he hits home runs, but uh, sometimes he strikes out. So Thank you. The Last Duel, I expected to not be good at all, and I thought it was great. Even though yeah. you got to grit your teeth and get through some parts, as far as just movie making goes, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I got to Aliens. Chad knows. This is one of the movies that did this for me. I don't come in the middle of movies. I don't quit on movies. I don't leave them. And I watch them in order. And this is one of the movies that did this for me. I saw the end of Aliens from like mm, probably the scene where she goes back to get Newt. Okay. And so the power loader scene. Yep. Yep. All of that from there to the end. I didn't know what I was getting in for. I didn't know what I was even in. I was just hooked. I was like something on TBS. This is good. Let's watch this. And I realized I had stumbled into Aliens, but I was too hooked. I couldn't put it down. It's like, uh, it's it's addictive and I couldn't stop. And so I had it spoiled a little bit for me before I even watched the original one. I obviously went back and watched the original one and then watched all of this as it should be. And I have seen the director's cut before, but I admittedly have seen the theatrical more more recently. So I went back and watched the director's cut and I'm going to agree with Steven. If anybody at home hasn't watched this, watch the director's cut. James Cranman said, these are things that I wanted to have in the movie, but conventionally in the 80s, everyone said we had to cut this stuff down. Well, this is how it was really should have been seen. And I should have had the confidence as a director to say people like long movies. And clearly he got that confidence because with Titanic and Avatar and all these other super long movies that he makes, he got the confidence. So, um, but it is a better movie in the director's cut. It's all good. The stuff, when the cuts and stuff, they cuts that good. You got something great here. So, and I'm kind of between both of you, whatever movie you show me last, I can be convinced and say this is the better one because they are both phenomenal. Yeah, Cameron called Alien a haunted house and Aliens a roller coaster. So I like both. I like haunted houses. I like roller coasters. So, right? Yeah. So there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Unlike me walking into a TBS <laughs> end of the version here. Stick around and we'll be back and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final one, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen Alien since 1986, do you want to refresh people's memories? Ellen Ripley has been drifting in stasis for 57 years after destroying the Nostromo and the alien creature that slaughtered the rest of her crew. She's rescued by employees of the Whalen yutani Corporation, who are surprised to hear her story about the Exmoon LV-426, since it has since been terraformed into a colony. 
Whalen loses contact with the colony and asks their slimy representative, Carter Burke, along with a squad of colonial marines, to investigate. They plead with Ripley and convince her to come along as an expert. Upon arrival, they discover the colony empty, but two live facehuggers are present in containment tanks. Ripley finds one survivor, a young girl named Newt. Worst news for the team, eventually the Marines find opened eggs and cocoon colonists shortly thereafter. The Marines are soon attacked by several xenomorphs and several are killed or captured. The rescue pilot is also killed, so the remaining Marines barricade themselves inside the colony. One by one, the Marines are picked off and Ripley discovers Burke has schemed to turn the facehuggers loose on her and Newt in order to smuggle them through Earth's quarantine. Boo, bad guy. Ripley and injured Corporal Hicks and Newt make their way to the dropship piloted by Android Bishop when they're confronted by the Xenomorph Queen. A showdown between Ripley and the Queen ensues. Ripley is victorious and she, Newt, Hicks, and Bishop enter hypersleep for their return to Earth. Or do they? Because Aliens 3 happens. No. No, it doesn't. No, it shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, we kind of got around this. So Alien is a very suspenseful movie that's very tense very you could put it in the horror genre as well and sure? this movie this movie is an action more emphasis on that but in fairness the mystery is lifted we've we've seen the alien we know what it can do how much tension can you really you can't go through all the motions again so broadwater knowing that cameron knew that talk about why he is successful here saying like i can't be ridley scott why do we not want to even do a retread well i think you hit the nail on the head Right, the we know what the alien looks like. I mean, that's part of Alien is you see little cuts and scenes of it, but like there's, if I recall correctly, there's a big reveal when it like finally stands up at one point, and mm-hmm. you're like 20 minutes from the end. Absolutely, like, they didn't have the money. Yeah, you know what the alien looks like. It's it's been revealed, and now Cameron's like, all right, what if instead of one alien, we had lots of them. <laughs> And he does, he says uh, in some interview, he was like, look, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you an action packed flick and he delivers. There's only so many times you can have a jump scare. Right. Mm -hmm. And those were all used up. Right. If I went to go see another movie after alien and it was just more jump scares of it hiding in corners, you know, that's a disappointing movie, but he hits it out of the park with this one. And then you don't see them. I think, even come close until they really try to develop the story again with Prometheus. I think it's interesting. We start off on Earth. She makes it home with her cat. Thank goodness. Jonesy. Like yeah, I like that cat. Do we have a good reason to go back? This is a challenging thing as a writer. Do, is it, does it make sense that why we're going back, Broadwater? And that's why I think the uh, director's cut is so much better because it lays that foundation. You know, in the cinematic, you just see, hey, They've decided to colonize this planet where, you know, your guy got infected by this alien ship. We, the Wayland yutani Corporation, are going to pretend like we didn't know that. And that's really the bad guy in all these films. And James Cameron, who went on to do Avatar and all these other great movies, that's kind of his M.O. And like, look, there's good guys and bad guys. But the reason the bad guys are bad are because of this capitalist endeavor over top of them making all these promises in avatar it's 
those guys going after the unobtainium mm-hmm. in Skynet and Terminator. And here we have the Wayland yutani Corporation, which you knew was bad from the original, but he launches into it so much. They and knew- Titanic, it was just an iceberg in fairness. There was no corporate, you know, malicious- there's corporate oversight with the boat. They were, they <laughs> were complacent. Of, yeah, yeah, this is good. <laughs> I'm kidding. Your point stands. And they just do such a good job of laying that groundwork because you know Burke's a bad guy and you know he's working for the company. But when they add the additional parts of the interview at the very beginning where she's like, how many times do I have to tell you? There was an alien ship. And then they're like, well, we know there's not because we sent colonists there. And then it cuts to literally the corporation telling Newt's parents to go out and get eat, uh, infected by the egg. I right. mean, it, just, it draws it all home and sets the scene for the later movies in a way that I, he couldn't have possibly known. But now it's, a, now it's a war movie, essentially. It's just humans against aliens. Yeah, I agree. I can't even picture it without the, you know, when I see this movie theatrical version, I mentally fill in the gaps. I don't want to unsee the director's version. I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm surprised that it stands so strong. People loved it even at the time, but it's even stronger with the director's cut. Right. It's, it's weird because we criticize other sci-fi franchises for including corporate board meetings. I think of the star Wars prequels. That was a huge thing. Do we really need to hear Senate hearings and trade confederation things, but here we need it. We need the slimy capitalists sacrificing good colonists for the sake of profit. We need that information. And as far as these movies go, I actually did have this conversation with my wife. She hasn't seen either of these movies, but I think it's not her thing. No, but I think there are personality types because I said, what would scare you more? Fear of the unknown or fear of the known? And she came down solidly on fear of the known. So I think this movie would be far more effective for her. For me, it's always fear of the unknown. And it's an interesting movie. Uh, Steve, Steve hit it of, we know these aliens. We know what they can do. We hadn't seen a queen before, but we know the acid blood. We know the extra tongue. In the original, you don't have any of that information. So how do you make that interesting? How do you put people, these Marines, in a situation where it becomes problematic when they have all this information going in? Oh, yeah, acid blood. They can crawl around. They're extremely intelligent. They're massive. This is how they reproduce. We have all this information. But then the tension comes through weaponry, through technology. The best scenes in this movie for me are when we're watching counters on e-guns. It's such a simple, cheap scene to film. We're literally just a display going down in numbers. I'm like, this is hugely effective. Or something slowly beeping to indicate it's closer to you. Cameron just does a great job of ratcheting that tension up without having to resort to jump scares. Also, your facility is going to blow up. Your escape pod fails, and you don't have a way to get to an escape pod. So that's a lot of tension. And your android may be untrustworthy. Again, I'm glad they didn't go back to that. Somehow these Marines are... I I, I felt like uh, these Marines vary a lot from... You instill confidence in me. Some of them are like, yeah... I feel good that you've got my back to, I'm not sure why you're on this mission. <laughs> Looking at you, Bill Paxton. The role of his life. <laughs> it's all over. 
game over, man. I can't watch another Bill Paxton movie without thinking that. What was the HBO one where he was the Mormon dad with like three wives? Every single time that show would come on and like one of the wives would do something terrible or cause another friend would be like, game over, man. Like I just couldn't separate him from that character because I loved it so much. Chad, what you said there about watching the counters and stuff, maybe I don't have a good enough library of old movies to watch. But I keep feeling like some of the technological stuff James Cameron did in Aliens has is just so iconic. It's been re- repeated over and over again, not just in movies, but in video games too. The From the burst guns with the exploding uh, rounds to the counters like you were talking about and the proximity beeping thing, how close yes. moving things are. Like so many things in this movie I felt got done again better later down to the loader that she walks in to the mechs they've got in Avatar. And not just in James Cameron movies, but they're just so iconic. I feel like you see a lot of things in this movie that get repeated over and over again because they've just done so well. I think he's really good at taking the things that have gone before him and building on them. I think he had the benefit. I mean, everybody can stand on the shoulders of Stanley Kubrick and George Lucas from having done 2001 or Star Wars, and uh, but also Ridley Scott. and he doesn't just take everything that they did. He advances it. You're right. He has to create more environments than the Ridley Scott one did. So the spaceships are far more ambitious. Scott didn't want to show that much. He didn't have the budget to show that much. But to his credit, Cameron's really, you know, he's a director who tells people what he wants. And we'll, we'll get into this later. Some of the people that Scott had, he didn't bring back. And perhaps because Cameron had a vision for what he wanted and he wanted people to help complete his vision. His vision is very inclusive and very immersive, and he's very good at world building. So, yeah. so I don't think you get all these other sequels that you've mentioned. The franchise Alien is just probably a really great movie on its own. Aliens builds a world and a franchise for this to elevate Alien. Alien gets more credibility because it is the genesis of this big thing. But really, it's through James Cameron's sequel that it, we're still watching Alien movies to this day. Yeah, it's interesting that Fox didn't think it was bankable. That's but. really strange. They they didn't go to, if you go back and listen to our first episode that we did on Alien, it's astounding to me that nobody wanted to do Alien. And then after it was massively prosperous. <laughs> it's like it makes a hundred million dollars. It's like like, hmm, you got lucky. I don't know that I buy that this isn't gonna be a real success. Well, so. it's it's the this is an interesting time because they're coming off of the end of the seventies and they say Horror movies just aren't that profitable. And what did we have in like 1984? It's some of the greatest horror ever produced. You get stuff like Gremlins, Nightmare on Elm Street. You get Ghostbusters. So the studio was so, so very, very wrong. 1984 is one of the best horror years in in history. And then off of that, we have 86. And it still is. I still plunk this down. Probably an action thriller first, but it does have horror in it. Yeah. It was hard to make this happen. So credit for Cameron for making this happen. But Sigourney Weaver was not a guarantee to come back. Broadwater, do you even want to imagine what Aliens is like without Sigourney Weaver coming back? There is. There's no Aliens without Sigourney Weaver. And I found it. I thought there were a couple of neat stories doing research on this. One is that Fox wasn't willing to pay her salary. They paid her $31,000 for Aliens. She wanted a million dollars to do the sequel. 
and Fox balked. They were like, no, man, we're not going to do it. And Cameron went out and told the media, there is no aliens without Sigourney Weaver. She's got to be the lead. And he went to bat for behind the scenes too. And they eventually caved and paid her a million dollars, which I believe was what, what'd you say? One eighteenth of the total overall budget of the film. That's not a bad thing to do though, for a top build actor, even by today's no. standards. Like, no, but, but he was right. And that's what we're all sitting here talking about is like, without her, she's not in it. And she wasn't even going to do it. Yeah. She declined some offers. Right. Without uh, reading his script first. And, what brought her in was how deep his script was and how much it played into the, you're not just an action hero, you're a mother. And we're going to play into that really hard, both with Newt and then also with the Queen Alien, right? Uh, they, they went into that so hard and she was so into it. And her last demand was, fine, but I don't want her to shoot a gun. And James Cameron was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that for you. And God bless him for not caving on the right. <laughs> Because that last scene when she just duct tapes the flamethrower to the uh, rifle is just, uh, you know, some of the best 20 minutes in cinematic history, I think. It was just so enjoyable. It's just such a thrill ride. I read as a way to convince her they took her to a gun range and he let her shoot an automatic weapon, which... I've not done it, but I'm not sure. I'm just treating a regular gun's pretty exciting and enthralling, but I mean, uh, to shoot an automatic weapon is an adrenaline rush. And she got done. It's like, okay, that, that is, that is pretty cool. Right. So. <laughs> I'll give you this one, James. That's fine. Yeah. She, she winds up, Cameron talks about it and says he kind of gives her the Sarah Connor role where she, she's not a damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. Bad things are happening around her, but she's perfectly capable of handling it herself. And Ripley is just such a fascinating heroine. I think she's the best heroine of all time as far as franchises go. Because she is scared. She doesn't want to go back. She's making all the logical decisions of this is some messed up stuff. Bad things are going to happen. I'm rightfully afraid. She has the loss of her daughter. And you see her just slowly transform and accept the situation for what it is. And then be innovative with how she solves it she has the loading training so she uses the power loader at the end she's got the motherhood everything about her there's a reason she's a feminist icon but i don't even think it has to be that she is just she's an awesome heroine i think she's got to be on that mount rushmore of those best film heroines as you pointed out i mean i think princess leia is certainly one of them i mean she's the you know there's no rebel forces without her and right then, uh, i think sarah connor though is on there. And I think it's very interesting that James Cameron was able to do both of them, both of these, you know, Sarah Connor and Ripley's. I mean, if you're talking about a powerful, well-constructed female characters. You can do no better. As Chad pointed out. Um, Campbell and scream. I think it's also interesting. He brings back some familiar faces. Hicks was originally going to be James Reamer, but they ended up getting Michael Bean from the Terminator. Yes. I think it's also interesting that he had to replace him. I guess Reamer, Initially said it was our artistic differences with the director, but later he stated that he was fired because he was busted for possession of drugs. And it was a hard period of time in his life where he had a drug problem. So these things happen sometimes, but uh, I like to see Michael Bean back in here as well. Like he's not known as this kind of role. He's normally more of a tough guy before this, but honestly, this is this in Terminator is what I think about first with him. hundred percent. I will say this much. I think the crew 
Do you feel like there's a difference in how we connected to the crew of the Nostromo, which was granted not a military group and their interrelations would be different versus here in Aliens? I just think it's so much more fun, right? Not that the Nostromo, you know, you didn't feel for them as a, as a crew, but I mean, again, it's a horror film. Everybody's scared. Everybody's wondering what's going on. And this group right from the get-go is, hell yeah, let's get in there. We're going to do what we do best. And not to keep harping on how great James Cameron is, but another great piece of trivia here was the fact that he shot all those scenes last. So (laughs) everybody there, they shot the whole movie. And after they all bonded and and got to be great friends, he was like, okay, now we're going to shoot those beginning scenes when you're all waking up on the ship because now they really are all friends. It's been like months of shooting together. And, and that comes through in spades. Like, you know, hey, uh, Vasquez, you ever been uh, mistaken for a man? No. Have you? Like, I mean, that was good. It's great. It's great. Apone's a lot of fun, too, by the way. Like, oh, his wow. casual, like, I've seen it all kind of attitude. Waking right. up after hypersleep and sticking that cigar in his mouth for you and sits up. Like, oh, okay. I'm not going to mess with this guy. I think it's interesting one of those funny, we're talking about gun stories, maybe, maybe a little bit more, you know, hesitant after, you know, Brandon Lee and Alec Baldwin actually killed some people on set, but James Remar had a shotgun on the set before he was recast as Michael Bean. And uh, <laughs> he blasted a hole in the side of it and little shop of horrors, which we've covered was on the other side of the recording studio and a hole was shot through at the Pinewood studio into the little shop of horrors <laughs> set. And so, yeah, the guy with the drug problem going haywire with his gun and stuff like that. So uh, Ooh, yeah. I did not, I did not reach that little piece of trivia that, uh, especially in light of our dear friend, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Feed me Seymour. We'll have solved the problem. Luckily, nobody on Little Shop of Horrors was shot, so we can laugh at this story. But you're right, tense moment. So just to give you an idea, this is the guy who got replaced. So <laughs> I feel like if anyone had been shot, it would have been Rick Moranis. Like That seems like something that would happen to him, just get a little buckshot. I like to imagine the story where you lose your job and just like, we're going to recast you. What? Why? Is it the gun thing that I shot? No, okay. no, it actually... <laughs> It's the drugs. It's it's mainly the drugs. A little bit the gunshot. (laughs) It is the superior cast, though of the of the first two movies. I like my time with these colonial marines better. They're they're not set up. I mean, they're they're still set up to die. Let's face it. But we do get the twist of Hicks living, which is great. And I I enjoyed. Him not having to make the noble sacrifice in the end to save the woman. You thought it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. The first time you see it, it's like, I've seen how this plays out. I know your role. You're going to stay behind. To be fair, they did just shift that over to the worthless lieutenant. Yes, absolutely. Super worthless. He got knocked out for half the movie. I can't remember what his rank was, but yeah, the worthless scaredy cat. Superior officer in Vasquez, who was arguably my favorite uh, Marine besides Apone. Yeah, Gorman is the person that uh, sacrifices himself. He does that, yeah. Only good thing he does in the entire movie. Yeah, he freezes up. I I don't know how I would react if 
alien species suddenly comes out and starts slaughtering my well-trained companions. That's why she was brought on this trip to tell them everything. She already told them. He said, read it. And he told everybody else who was making a joke about it. It's all in the report. Read the report. So, you know, he should have been ready. You know, I mean, this is, you have an advisor sitting right next to you telling you to pull them out. And it doesn't take long for the Marines to figure out, hmm. But they, this lady, I mean, this lady knows more what she's talking about. Right. <laughs> part of the the brilliance of the script and the Wayland Utani uh, whole thing that Cameron sets up from the beginning in every single layer, because right, you find out from the beginning how many drops is this for you? Thirty eight simulated. Like that, they picked the most worthless uh, superior officer they could send down there to set them all up. This whole thing was a setup from the beginning, and when he finally realizes it. He offs himself, does the right thing, tries to save him to get him out. So I think it's interesting. Paxson runs into Cameron and he jokingly told Cameron, you know, I hope you have a good part for me in Aliens. And he called him in for the addition and gave him a fake plasma rifle to use. He got a little too enthusiastic, he thought. He thought he was going too heavy, too over the top. But Cameron's like, nah, it's good. Give me more of that Paxton energy. <laughs> and so and so Private Hudson ended up becoming a comic relief character. Do you like this character? I loved him. I mean, it, like I said before, Bill Paxton's character was just, I can't think of Bill Paxton without thinking of that character. When he died, it seemed like a lot of people would tell stories about what a cool dude he was off the screen. And I think a lot of people's appeal to Paxton is just liking to work with him. I oftentimes feel like some of his roles in movies maybe might be better if they were played by somebody else. But I think that people genuinely like working with him. And I think there was an endearing story that was told that he kept apologizing over and over and over again because he uses a ton of bad language in the movie. He kept turning to his Carrie Hen, the, the little girl who plays Newton, being like, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to look her up. This was like her only movie. Right. She did the, something in 2020 and that was a School teacher in California. Yeah. 12 years old and with no acting experience and James Cameron just says, you have emotive eyes. You're... You're the star of my movie. She does. She had, the, she had the, like these puppy dog, like, you know, like help me. Like she made these faces really well. Yes. That said like, I'm in danger. Yeah, that's, it is interesting. Cause I've, I've had the thing and I wonder how Dustin would respond to it as well. He and I are the, let's kill the children. They are terrible. They're bad people. Terrible. They make, they make movies worse. And Newt manages with no acting experience to make this movie better. She provides that lost daughter role. She she has her cute, hideous little doll that she carries around. The thing head. is just head of a doll. Right. Yeah. The thing is not really attractive at all. Like, but she's attached to it. And I get it. And she she's not pointing out the obvious. She's not really causing additional problems for the crew. She's making logical decisions, even for a little kid. So I I appreciate Newt. I appreciate the way she was written. And this is just, a big moment for you, Chad. I, I've given children awards before. Drew Barrymore and E.T. is delightful. But it, you were just thinking the Russians are coming, where we wanted the kid shot in the face like the I, first. I thought that's where we were headed for yeah. the 19th time. So thank you for bringing something new to the podcast. Jeff. I wonder how much credit, if we had Carrie Hinn sitting here, I wonder how much credit she'd give to Sigourney Weaver for that. Like you have to figure that they bonded on set. They did. I mean, that's their. That's a huge part of this whole movie is is their relationship. And I, 
I can't help but think that Sigourney Weaver just not only carried her through the movie, but like helped her develop and and do the right things on set. And I would I'd, I'd love to hear that story from one of them. Another instance of Cameron giving a female character a child again, well constructed, good film time. It certainly passes the Bechdel test. Are we getting to the point where? We're going to start calling this movie, or I'm going to have to start thinking of this movie as Terminator in the future with aliens. I mean, he said he always wanted to make a space movie. So yeah, probably. <laughs> like the more, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, and he wrote the script for aliens while waiting on Arnold Schwarzenegger to finish Conan. So he's yeah. got nine months there while he's waiting on Arnold. He writes this script. And now I'm like, Dude, this is, it's like people who say that Hogwarts or Harry Potter is just Star Wars with worse lightsabers. Like, did you just give me Terminator with aliens? And I'm starting to think you might have. Maybe. It's fun. It yeah, works. Like Disney keeps making the same movies over and over again. And they keep yes. making money from everybody over and over again. And nobody's complaining because we're having a good time. So oh, it's still great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And another, you, you mentioned her before, but I think Jeanette Goldstein, that's another one of those good moments too. She's, they show her as physically equal and able to compete and to play the game of the Marine. Now that's role. something that did not hold up though for nowadays. You don't think so? They they had to paint her skin to make her look Latino. That I did not realize that actually. <laughs> yes. I have no idea. That's terrible. I just thought she was. You see, you, you, I right? was convinced. I did too. Yeah, yeah. She is. She's not. And they. There aren't they, many women who are that ripped to play the part, though. Yeah, that that is great. And but yeah, that's probably the the massive thing that doesn't hold up. We would. This is the Michelle Rodriguez role. So Jeanette walks, so Michelle Rodriguez can run. Like this is, if Michelle Rodriguez was old enough in 1986, this is a hundred percent who she would be cast as, and she's great in those roles. Now, Ian Holm was our robot artificial life form before. Broadwater, do you like Lance Henriksen as Bishop coming in? How would you compare the, his performance this time as opposed to Ian Holm's before? I really liked him, and I really can't even think of Ian Holmes as the android because, you know, in my mind, he is a Baggins, and I just can't. <laughs> Even though I've seen him in Alien and I know he was the bad guy, every time I remember that scene of him alone in the computer room, I just, I, I can't help but, you know, see Gandalf walk in through the door and it just plays with my mind constantly. And I love Lance Henriksen and I really love that he showed up again. I, I don't know. I don't want to give any spoilers of Alien 3, but he does make another appearance in Alien 3 in a way that I think works really well in the whole universe. So I think he did a wonderful job, especially because I kept waiting for him to double cross them. I did too. Yes. And I, I think, you know, the script was written that way, but he played that part so well of, am I going to double cross you in a second? And he <laughs> he's got a knife. I keep, I wait for it till the very end and they play on it so well with him having to take off and be gone at the last second. It's, it's perfect. I love it. Yeah, you kept waiting for him to be like, psych! <laughs> Withdrawing his hand and pulling the And then away. he does! But not really! Oh my god! <laughs> yes. Yeah. You get I, the, the knife scene early, and it's like, okay, he, he's got some form of menace. He's good with weapons. How will this be used? 
As the actor, he unwisely brought a giant bag of knives to the airport, which <laughs> not a good idea. He had he had about seven or eight different knives it was that he was 80s. practicing with that he brought into the airport and just didn't think about it and carelessly brought them all through customs. So it's fine. Yeah, this is pre 9-11. Right. So, <laughs> guns are going off sets. Knives are going through security. <laughs> Hard um, to imagine. Hard to yeah. remember. She yeah. stayed on. He does do the knife trick himself, though. That's not a stunt hand. And apparently Paxton didn't know that he was going to have his hand put down on the table. I still hear this story and I'm going, hmm, that just sounds like a good story. I just can't believe I mean. Here's I, why I don't believe it. I don't believe that either because you can pull your hand pretty I, hard. I yeah. when you it. He would have he been pulling it back way more. And the way they shot that was to just speed it up. They just shot it at a normal speed and speed it up. And they say you can see it in Apone or somebody's face because they're like laughing and they're just moving a little bit too quick, right? Like they're jerking. So they had to tell Bill Paxton – just hold that face slowly for a while. So either he wasn't really that scared at all because he wasn't trying to get out of there and he wasn't fighting anymore, or it's just a made-up nugget that doesn't hold up. When I think I think Henriksen can do the trick with moderate speed more than you or I would want to do for sure. But yes, they had to speed it up to droid speed. So um, yeah, the trick's not fun if I do it. It's like right. pop, pop, pop. Like okay. <laughs> Uh, now, Michael Bean, who replaced James Remar one week into that, he didn't get to do all this training, but all the other people actually trained with Marines to be more Marine-like. I can't say that I really noticed it as much, but it's interesting that they intentionally didn't have Sigourney Weaver and Paul Reiser doing that so that they don't seem like they're Marines. I like that attention to detail. Perhaps I'm not a Marine, so it doesn't show through as much, but I don't pick up on the subtlety as much, but I like that they're considering that. It's the Matt Damon in Saving Private Ryan treatment where he doesn't have to do everything, so everyone genuinely resents him. Well, I can't think of one scene where Hicks, Michael Bean, is you know, being a badass Marine. And mm. I don't know if that was intentional, because they just cut those scenes. But everybody else, even the like no-names, who you just see a very little bit of at the beginning and getting murdered, that's a great point. Uh, you see them going nuts, but you never see uh, Michael Bean really being a Marine until he gets the acid on his face at the end because he shotguns the alien in the face. That's a good point. He's behind Hudson, though. Hudson's the center I mean, of attention going. Just like around, yeah. but you don't really see his face in any of the action scenes. Vasquez and Paxton do get some pretty good fire power scenes. And so, I mean... <laughs> And yeah, I and it doesn't look like they're holding a squirt gun or anything like that. So I guess it pays off with authenticity there. So. But you know what's frustrating about that? And this is this is one of my knocks on the movie is Ripley, who has no training whatsoever, is far better and more efficient at killing the aliens with short bursts than the Marines are. It's the effect of, uh, you know, the mother trying to save her child flips over the car kind of thing. You don't, you don't, you know, she's, she's effectively already adopted this child. So you don't get the mother and her child. If she's not good at killing those aliens, this movie ends badly. Absolutely. But you kind of want the Marines to be a little bit more effective in the beginning and then just be swarmed and outnumbered. This is a Zerg rush. This is again, the writing, they put that in. If you shoot your pulse rifles with your exploding 10 millimeter rounds, you're going to rupture the cooling system and it's all going to blow to hell, which it does anyway. Right. We do get the short burst advice later on. So, yeah. 
But at some point, I wrote down a bunch of notes here when I was watching it. Like now that I am older and I have seen it a million times and I was watching it to watch this podcast, uh, there are some truly funny things about the movie that I'd never thought about. Mm-hmm. One of which we're kind of hitting on here, right? Like they write the Marines as if they're stormtroopers. Yeah. yeah. They're really yeah, they, not they, doing much good. No. Uh, that's one. And two, drop ceilings. Terrible. So if you're ever <laughs> building a space station, no drop ceilings. And this movie had to contribute to the this and Die Hard, I think, are why I grew up thinking that every HVAC system had basically hallways built into it that I could crawl through. <laughs> yes, they're usually much smaller than that. Nobody's moving through them. Brother, I mean, you lived there for, and that's another good point. How did anybody get a sense? I should have looked this up before the the podcast, but did anybody get a sense for what the time was between? them saying they lost contact with the with the colony and Ripley and the Marines arriving. How long did Newt live by herself? Because I always thought it was like a couple months. And then the next thought is, did they really need to put him in cryo sleep for a couple months? I thought it was like three or four days. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think we're on days here, not... Why are they in cryo sleep? Don't you get this sense from the alien movies that the cryo sleep is like hmm, I don't know when you travel aging to your body and it's like are we traveling faster than the speed of light to where you're aging differently and stuff? Is that is that how this works? That's a good that's a good point. <laughs> Let's not tug at this fabric too much. Like how hmm. long how long did Newt live the I mean, let's say you are going approaching the speed of light, right? So that means on rel- the theory of relativity, right, you're aging less fast than everybody else. But it's three days. Who cares? Three months, I thought, was the uh, made sense to me. Like, she could scrounge around and find enough food for three months. But even then, I'm like, then they really need it. And at that point, if they did, it's just Wayland Yutani trying to save money on food. Those bastards. I can't yeah. trust a 10-year-old to stay alive for three months. No, <laughs> she can't mark Watney of whole potato field in there on her own. So no, that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But... It's interesting, though. Cameron was selected to be the screenwriter and the director here. From what I can tell, Ridley Scott said they did not contact me wanting to do this again. Now, Chad, you've mentioned before that your heart perhaps lies with the first movie over this movie. How does that make you feel? Like, I mean, like, I find it confusing. Why don't we have Ridley Scott? Cameron's awesome. But before this thing is ever assigned anybody, why did Ridley Scott not get to have this? Yeah, that part is baffling to me of... Ridley Scott is kind of a cantankerous old soul. So maybe maybe it was just, you were so difficult and such a pain in the backside. You know what? We don't even want to work with you again on a sequel. And maybe he had said outright, I don't don't want this to be a franchise. Sigourney Weaver didn't think it was going to be a franchise. She said, I don't want to do a movie if this is just a financial cop, cop out. Like, I don't want to do a sequel just to make more money, just because the first one made a lot of money. There's going to be a reason. So I I could see it going that way of Ridley Scott's difficult to work with. He doesn't continue on series. He just does his thing. Although we're getting Gladiator 2 after 20 some odd years. What? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, he, he's, Spoilers he, for you. he does seem, and he's he is somebody who, who uh, does not, 
shy away from criticizing other people's work. You can definitely see several articles where he does so. He's actually pretty kind to Cameron, taking over perhaps one of his greatest movies. So you've achieved a high level there when you know someone comes in and takes your thing from you. You have every right to be bitter about it, and you get to there and go, eh, "Good job, American guy." Right. <laughs> um, but Canadian. Oh, dual citizenship now. Well, I think anybody would think he was crazy. I mean, the level of focus you have to have. To, I mean, think about everything he did with Titanic. Like, my yeah. God. He might be... Yep, he's born in Canada. Yep, Ontario. Thank you. Gotcha. You did. I don't know how to fix that in post, but anyway. Um... We're not going to. Russell gets stuff. No, no, no. You just, you take your L. I got my <laughs> one point on the on the career guys that have been doing this for years. I think that's my one. All um, right. Well done, Canadian guy. <laughs> but the rest of the crew, many of them, and Pinewood Studios and over there in England had worked with Ridley and they did not like James Cameron. Did you see any of these stories, Broadwater? Yeah, I mean, clearly they didn't get along. He had to fire, what, his director of photography and at least one assistant director. And at the very end, he gets up to give a speech and everybody thinks it's, oh, it's been a tough, long road. It was a pleasure to work with you. And he's like, I can't wait to get out. I hate you all. Please go. <laughs> He did a uh, screening of Terminator to try to convince them all like, hey, look, I know what I'm doing. He did set it up. He invited everyone and only the actors showed up. So like, like we were mostly American. (laughs) They just did not get along with Cameron. But, you know, God bless him for sticking to his guns and forcing him to do exactly what he wanted to do. I also think Cameron has grown to become more and more difficult. To, as a personality to manage over time. But I'm not putting it all on the crew there, but they certainly fought back. They took tea breaks and stuff like that. They very they guarded very heavily. And so there'd be scenes where they had a certain amount of fog in the room and then they, they would leave. Like So like the scene where all the, like, the eggs are in the hive there, they'd be like, I'm going on tea break. And like Cameron's like, don't open the door. Don't open the door. Ah, you open the door and like let all the <laughs> fog out. And so like then they have to fill the room back up with fog again. And it's like, okay, someone's like, I'm going on tea break. Stop opening the door. <laughs> It's like, and like nobody listening to him at all. And like the guy, as you mentioned, the director of photography was sitting there going like, uh, hmm, I want to put more light in the room. No, I want darker, less light. I don't want to show the whole room off. It's better if it's dark. No, I, I know what you want. It's, it, we'll make it light. No, dark. And then he would shoot it light anyway. And he's, and then that's, that's how you lose your job, by the way. <laughs> so. Oh, and, and you should. Maybe I'm... You know, I'm not one of these grind till I die, you know, wake up, start the grind kind of guys. But when you have a group project like that, I cannot imagine how infuriating it is to be in charge and be like, you do this, you do this, you do this. All right. We're all professionals. Let's go. Nah, I'm going to do something like I I can't imagine what, what that would be like. And I don't know. You know, I'd love to see an interview with some of the crew to kind of get a sense of is this just them being upset Ridley's not here or is it them being upset that, you know, some outsiders coming in or is that just how they did things over there? Like, are, are we going to start having siestas next? Is that what they <laughs> do? Like, guys, let's get it done. Like we got a long day. Let's work as hard as we can and then go home early rather than drag this thing out all day. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. And I guess as producer, Gail Amber Heard was, his wife or girlfriend? I can't remember now. But eventually one, but I think girlfriend at the time. Girlfriend, okay. Yeah, that also felt like favoritism at the point at that point. So while she pulled her weight and was capable and this movie's awesome, 
there was a sense of like, ah, they're the producer and the director are in bed together, literally, right. you know, like in, and they're teaming up against us. And these Americans are coming over here and telling us how to do things, even though we made an amazing movie before even Giger, who did the amazing work in the first movie, the set design and the Stan Winston comes in with his studio to do all the set design for this one. So even the amazing look of the first movie, Cameron went another direction. Giger said, this is an amazing job. I really, again, similar to Scott saying like, hey, I probably would have done something like that anyway. It's really good. Again, it's interesting that Cameron and Stan Winston, there's just a big difference of change of directions. Perhaps some of it's time that's gone on, but I can't fully understand. I, I Part of me would be wondering if I were these British guys on hand, like, why is the whole band not back together here? This doesn't feel right. That's fair. The crew walked out after he fired his cinematographer, and he even threatened to take the movie back to America, which would add considerable cost because that's why they're there in the first place to do so. And apparently somebody came in to help moderate this and they all cooled off and cooler heads prevailed in the end and they made their movie. But I got to say, it's funny with all this conflict, it doesn't show. I don't feel like it's made by unloving hands. I don't think like somebody painted in the background, like, I'm going to put a giant penis on the wall so and see if James notices or something like that. I don't feel that anger or animosity or I'm sandbagging my job in it because top to bottom, it seems like it's top notch to me. It just clearly took blood, sweat and tears from Cameron to, to get to get it there. At least when they did work, they did an honest job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when they weren't on tea break. So <laughs> if you look at his resume, we have Piranha 2, The Spawning. And the first Terminator is low budget. It's not it been is, brought out yet, by the way, either. It's in production to be made. Yeah, it he is. It's an early screening. It hasn't hit the theaters. I don't think they could have known that the Terminator would wind up spawning this amazing franchise. If you go back and watch with critical eyes, the original Terminator, it's fun. It's good, but it's like upper B class movie. I don't think it would stand out as like this triple A production. It's an interesting little film that I think it's forgotten about in the light of Terminator 2 and the amazing effects of Terminator 2. That's another one of those instances where the sequel is so amazing, it makes the original greater. Shortcomings of the original in that case, which there aren't many shortcomings of Alien, but I mean, shortcomings in that one are forgiven when you see what's to come later. And again, transitioning from horror to action. The first one's horror, the second one's action. Hey, I can't remember if I uh, ever actually saw this movie, but one of the things I noticed looking at Cameron's movies was around the same time, he also took over and did Rambo 2. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's when he wrote, and that's when he was he was writing the script for that, if I'm not mistaken. Now, mm-hmm. I remember Rambo 1 as a great movie, but I can't even remember what happens in Rambo 2. How did it hold up? He kills more people. Rambo 2 is a less emotional movie. Like the first one has some very hard hitting drama where you're just like, wow, I'm really right. feeling for this you prisoner for or like, you know, like, you know, like this guy who's brought home. How do I fit back into say Rambo 1 had a whole lot to say. The second one <laughs> had a whole lot of people to kill and Rambo is the man to kill him. So it, it is a little bit of the James Cameron work of like all that you know of Rambo is actually probably more so Rambo too. Like we're going to send one man into the jungle and he's going to destroy the whole Viet Cong. So yeah, the cartoon nature of what you may think of when you think of Rambo 
the humorous side of exaggeration that Weird Al parodies in UHF. <laughs> that that is the James Cameron Rambo. Hey James, sure. we're gonna let you do this sequel. What are you gonna do? A lot more killing. <laughs> I'm gonna need a lot of bullets. I'm gonna need a, uh, I'm gonna need some explosives. I'm gonna need a lot of bullets. I'm gonna need. Yeah, we're just gonna need a lot of helicopters. We're gonna need it all. Explosive arrows. What's he gonna do with that in the middle of the jungle? You'll see. This movie was such a good. Like I can't think of any movie, and I'm sure there's plenty. This is just my ignorance of the whole library of great movies. Watching it now in the age of Marvel and all that stuff is the physical props, right? When they actually cover everything with that, you know, secretion from the aliens, like. You're not going to recreate that digitally, certainly not in the 80s, and have it be in any way believable. And one movie I want to go back and watch again that came out at the same time is the original Dune. Like, I love the new Dune, the first half we got from HBO, and I never actually had seen the full original Dune. But one of the things I remember people making fun of it for were the special effects and how they tried to do too much. And I only noticed that a single time in this movie which was with the queen at some point, everything's exploding and she's clearly in front of a green scene, but it's like two seconds of the movie. And I take such notice of it because it's the only time in the entire movie. Like I notice that the rest of the time, everything is physical effects. There's people working the queen, right? The eggs are actually there and opening. And the other times when you know it's happening, they do a pretty good job of hiding it. But that's the one scene where they just couldn't hide it. And it was because of all the explosions. I'm going to be kind to it, but I think the loader that she steps into, the movement on it might not be as fast and fluid as I had I had it's kept, really I had kept updating it in my mind. It looked good in the 80s. And yeah, it is good. <laughs> and it is very exciting. In my head, when I play it back, it might run a little bit smoother and faster than it actually is in the, yeah, in the movie. It's a little bit robotic, which... That's fine. I mean, people were calling the movie being like, uh, you know, where can my distribution center buy one of these? I want one of these. <laughs> so, uh, and they were disappointed to find out I that you could not one. have one. I'd prefer one from Avatar, but like I'd take one of those. Oh, that's another interesting connection you just made. I didn't, <laughs> I did not realize the, the person in the, you're right. He just keeps doing the same thing. That's uh, the first thing I noticed when I saw Avatar. That the guy with the scar on his face steps into the mech and I'm like, bro, you designed that from Aliens. And I didn't even make the connection. They were both James Cameron at the time. I just loved Aliens so much. I was like, I've seen that. You're taking it. You're stealing it from Aliens. We keep letting him get away with this. I mean, yeah, he's rewarded every time he does it. There's hundreds of millions of dollars. It somehow gets better. And I haven't seen Avatar 2 yet, so do not spoil it for me. But I have high hopes. I'm out on the three and a half hour Aliens. Like, I just can't do it. One day. Our peaceful blue aliens. Yeah, one day I'll get to it. But I got to have a lot of time and less less six-year-olds in my house. (laughs) Clear out the schedule. (laughs) I liked the fact that the derelict ship that they had was the same model that they had from the first one. I think the model work in this is excellent. We're still in an era where we're using miniature models. I know I've said this so many times on the show, but... These models look really good. And early CGI, it takes years for CGI to get good enough to be able to put a candle to these models. Agreed. Yeah, I don't want them to redo this movie. But if they did, I'd be first in line to see it. Like, and that's another, the models are the one, like maybe the other place where I noticed that physical 
set building. And the scene I'm thinking of in particular is one that was only in the director's cut or the extended edition where they're driving out to the ship and you kind of see it like following and you're like, okay, that's a model, but it was really good. And they still have to build the full size to bring him back. I like the Bishop tried to wear double pupils, like the, like kind of like the lip biscuit, like, you know, big yeah. double, like the big black eyes and James Cameron's like, Ugh, that's, that's too scary. You're so, scarier than the alien. Yes. Making the queen though was an ambitious thing. And I'm glad you started to talk about what it took to run that. It's a gigantic four-armed body with a huge head that with a retractable face. It's got translucent teeth and all these sketches that were made. Cameron made this and handed it to Stan Winston and Stan Winston ran with it and built a quarter inch scale of this. And then they built, this thing is full size. This is, it took 14 to 16 operators just to move this thing around. It was the head, the neck, the body, the face, the lips, the tongue, all moving independently. Different people moving this around. Do you have any idea how hard it is to shoot this and not see them? Can I just can't angry? imagine how they all got fit in that elevator. I mean, that's what... <laughs> it's uh, it's made from molded fiberglass and foam. It's interesting. They just dressed up a large seven foot man before, but they used anima. They had money to do animatronic creatures this time, and so it shows you Cameron's again persistence to. To continue to build on what Scott had done. If you give me money, I will spend it. The James Cameron <laughs> mantra. <laughs> Can I have more money? Then I've got an idea. And well, I will spend it well. This will not it will not be just burning it. It will be, you will get what you pay for, but you're going to have to pay a lot for it. I think we're applying past things though. 18 million is a lot in the 80s, but it's not obscene. Like his habits of spending come in later. In today's money, it's still nothing. It's like forty-eight million. Yeah, like that. Movies like that do way more than that now. So, I don't think you, I don't think you could produce an hour of a Marvel movie for forty-eight million dollars. I think the face huggers they use a lot more of those in this movie too. By the way, the laboratory that they move through, which just made me, I felt like Ripley should have had a bigger response as she was moving through the laboratory of like, you told me we're coming to destroy these things. Here you are studying them. Right. I was like, nobody's mentioning that we've played with fire here. <laughs> so, you just want to see her go ham on those containment cells, just with a pickaxe or something. This is how you do. I kept waiting for Ripley to be like, okay, now blow it up. Okay, right. now blow it up. Okay. I'm going to stand here and watch you do it. It's like when you punish your children. I'm going to stand here and watch you do what I just told you to do. No, you can't be trusted. And at what point did they leave out the part that they leave a sticky, gross residue so that the pilots are just like, mm, what is this on an alien world? I have no idea. Those guys didn't read the report, but we're all we're all in the corporate world. Like the amount of people that don't read my emails that are no more than two sentences. I understand this failure. <laughs> the facehuggers, though, look great, by the way. Like when they're in that medevac room that they are in, that's just so good. And the sprinklers are going off and the facehuggers moving around. There is good suspense in this movie and they are showing you a lot more. And to your point, they had more money to do it. But as Steve already put it right, everything they show is working great. I feel like we need another chest burster. Mm, we get a fake out in the beginning. I, yeah. I didn't really appreciate the fake out. I appreciate the extra Jonesy time, but I did. Yeah. I, I wanted Paul Reiser to get chest bursted. It, it got me. The first time I saw that, I definitely was like, oh my God, how are they going to do this so early? But again, I was like eight or nine. 
Uh, and I, you know, they did a real, it looked like the first one. Like it looked believable, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think in 1986, a feat all of itself. Looking at the soundtrack though, James Horner felt like Cameron wasn't giving him enough time to write a musical score. So he was, he, he actually takes pieces of previous scores that he had done, which includes Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, some other scores that he had to adapt from some other things from Gan Ballet Suite. The main titles are recycled he stated that there were tensions with working with cameron so it's not all the british crew cameron is a difficult personality by the way so but cameron loved the score from braveheart that he did later so much that he brought him back again to do titanic and that is a big one for horner so they both won oscars and stuff and for that there so and he brought him back again for avatar so celine dion would be out of place in this soundtrack yeah the xenomorphs will go on and on though right yeah, this soundtrack, I, I know it won awards, but what I found most striking is when the movie knows when to shut up. And the, there are so many times where you could have some kind of ominous music, but instead you just hear the background, the footsteps, the clicks, the sounds of the ship, and you sit there waiting. I, I love these types of movies, and when they do it, Paranormal Activity is one where you're, you have to pay attention to the background, what's going on. And for me, the best choice of sound is when they chose next to none. I wish they could have reused a little more of Jerry Goldsmith's score, but to your point, the tone of what they're doing in this movie is different. So Jerry Goldsmith's music is more tense and it's it's made for a different kind of movie. You do get a little bit of it, though, in the alien queen. Yeah. Is, when you see them, when, so when you see her. So... I wish there was just a little more continuity, but again, the tones are so different. I'm going to allow it just because we're making a different movie here. All right. Let's hand out some awards. What do you say, Steve? Sure. MVP. Who's your MVP of Alien? Or sorry, Aliens. James Cameron. That's totally fair. In a movie that nobody could have expected this movie. With a very close honorable mention to Sigourney Weaver. I mean, I got to give it to him because he wrote it, but this movie is nothing without Sigourney. It's amazing that his original screenplay was like 42 pages. That doesn't seem like much. That's to not get. long enough, yes. <laughs> I, I had no say. idea. Wow. He, he increased it a little bit later, but it's not as long as you think. Probably a lot more about what the director chose to do with the visuals and how he chose to present everything. So the screenplay is not that beefy. There's at least so. five pages of clicks. <laughs> when you write it and you know you're going to direct it, you may not need to fill it out as much. That's what I'm thinking. Kudos to him for selling a 42-page script and getting the job off it, because that's what he got the job on. Maybe that's why it took him so long to sell it, though. Terminator, I think, would help. Like, if you showed somebody and be like, by the way, I did this. See? See? See, I don't suck. (laughs) No, you don't see, because you didn't show up to look at it. Right. I'm going to do this with aliens. (laughs) Chad, who's your MVP? I went Sigourney Weaver. I think the arc between Alien and Aliens makes Ripley, I'll still argue, I think she's the best heroine of all time. And Sigourney Weaver just plays it masterfully. I truly respect everything Cameron did on this one, but I also, because of what you just said, Chad, this movie doesn't exist without Ripley, and it's not good without her, and I'm so glad that she came back to do it. She owns this. And the evolution of the character, the motherly role that plays in there with the protective nature over newt it adds richness to the character it makes you care about the movie and she's great she really does she's she does a great job here so best supporting this one's tougher because there's some fun choices here broadwater the marines are nothing 
without Bill Paxton. And I'm not just saying that and giving him a posthumous award, but none of them are as engaging. I don't care about Hicks. I don't care about Apom. I don't care about anybody else, but who, who really probably deserves it, if I'm being completely honest, is Paul Reiser. <laughs> But I'm giving it to Bill Hick, or I'm giving it to Hudson just because he was my favorite to watch. But as far as like actual actors go, turning in a performance, it's got to go to Paul Reiser. Mm, it's a great choice. Chad? I go Slimeball. I always go Slimeball. Slimy capitalist Paul Reiser is Burke. I like a good villain and especially a Weasley one. He almost takes the George Costanza shoving over the old lady and during the fire drill. He, he does the same thing with Ripley. Like he is using her as a human shield on the way to locking the door. Uh, and is much more calculated about it. Yeah. I'm going to go with Carrie Henn. I just think this is a very great performance by a young actress that, you know, she didn't do a lot of acting as you guys mentioned, but she nailed it here. She makes you worried not just for Ripley, like in the first movie, you just kind of have this, like this elevates it for me. When you put a child in danger, there's just something Chad knows this. We're on different pages here, but you know, you've, you've elevated the stakes for me. You just care about this little girl and you want her to come out. Okay. So 90% of the time. No, I don't. So does Chad just hate kids? Kid like, actors. What? Yeah. It's just kid actors. They, they rarely make a movie better. Yeah. Chad loves his daughter. He just hates movie daughters. Yes. And sons. And sons. Yeah. and pretty much any other time. Yeah. The kids will make decisions that make the entire scenario just fall to pieces. They make Not to get off the rails, Chad, but I want your singular example of the worst kid in a film. Actually, we probably need to keep this because I've never asked this one. I always try and say, what's the best one? Can you give me one you like? And he always points to Drew Barrymore. But no, no, no. The, the Babadook kid. The Babadook kid is... Kid. I hate that kid so much that I understand he was supposed to be trying for the mom and trauma, but I wanted the monster to eat that kid and just get rid of him. Mm. Is Babadook a movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a scary one. It's a good one. I'm not a big scary movie. Not because I, I just, I can't watch, but my wife doesn't watch scary movies at all. And so I only find myself watching them occasionally. The only one that I thought, like if I had to say, what's a great scary movie? It would be Cabin in the Woods because, like, yes. I expected a stupid we made Chad jump scare movie. And then I watched this and I'm like, this is hilarious. I love that movie. This is okay. Babadook is not hilarious. It's not a lighthearted event. So it's no, yeah, it is it's, not. It's a great movie. It's a great kid actor. That makes me sad. So, um, how old is it? 2014. Oh, okay. It's a it's contemporary. Okay. Yeah, Chad yes. can, yeah. Occasionally we do watch new movies here on Retro Movie Roundtable. So. <laughs> So, Hidden Jim, Broadwater. This can be anybody or anything that just might go overlooked that you think is awesome and needs to be shouted out for. Perfect answer. The automatic heavy gun mechanism that Vasquez and her buddy uses. Mm. The time I watched this movie in the beginning, I was like, that is so cool. Why don't they use that in real life? Clearly, it's on springs, it's assisted, it's very heavy. But because of all the stuff, it's not going to kick real hard. And I learned later that they used, they actually used the cameraman's rig to create that thing. That's cool. That is uh, cool. And if you see, you know, 
you watch those guys when they're shooting movies and they're moving around. You're like, how do they hold it so steady? They have this huge rig that like absorbs every movement. And they took that and they messed with it to turn into this, what I thought as a 12 year old boy, the coolest gun I'd ever seen in my life. Until a couple of years later, Arnold holds a mini gun and, and judges yes. day. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. Once I saw a spinning barrel, that kind of ended it for me. And then when I thought that was the coolest, then I learned about the A10 Warthog. And you know, we're all we're all twelve year old boys at heart. Yes, uh, I don't even have to watch the the gun in Judgment Day. Watching all the bullet shells hit the ground that fast was like, yeah. it's like, it's like look at all those shells. Imagine how hot they are. All right, Chad, hidden gem. Jonesy the cat. Um, <laughs> I love it. I, like I don't. It. I don't think we needed extra scenes with Jonesy, but I'm glad we got him anyways. And even if that includes a fake out scene, why yeah. did Jonesy not come along for the ride? Would you want to throw be... your cat back into that dangerous situation? She loves her cat, right? Uh, Jonesy had a hard life. You abandon your cat. Everyone you know, including your daughter, is dead, and you That's just leave her on this station. And let's keep in mind. The one scene we see of where they have her living has like toilet paper strewn on the floor. They clearly throw her in the slums of whatever space station they're on. And she just leaves Jonesy the cat there to fend for herself while she goes and enjoys three hots and a cot in a, you know, vacation space that happens to be inhabited by aliens. Oh, this is a man that does not own cats. Jonesy the cat absolutely out of sheer spite and anger destroyed that toilet paper. Jonesy is responsible for that. My cats have thrown similar tantrums. I'm just saying, if we know Jonesy can survive the hypersleep, she shouldn't have abandoned Jonesy. But I would agree. Hot take. The hidden gem. Wow. Okay. Well then, <laughs> my, my hidden gem here is going to be Josh Richardson. He supervised a 40-person team at Stan Winston Studio for the visual effects in this movie. Yeah, these aren't names that you normally think of, but this movie looks amazing. It looks so good. So he's great. If you had to put me on an actor, though, we haven't shouted out to him. Al Matthews was, you know, the Marine Sergeant in this film. He was a real life. One of the first black right. Marine to be promoted to the rank of Sergeant in the field during the service of Vietnam. So he's a real life hero and he brings his military man persona to this movie. And he's also mm -hmm. awesome. So small mm -hmm. shout out to him, but. That special effects, visual effects team is so good. So. I, I agree wholeheartedly. They, they, they made the movie. You know, there's so many parts that have to go right. Scorny Weaver, James Cameron writing everything. None of it works without them. Yeah. Now, recast. If you had to recast somebody else and put somebody else in their place, this can be tough when you love the movie. Rod Blatter. Someone who we don't have to paint brown as Vasquez. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always a safe answer in this era. <laughs> Time traveling Michelle that Rodriguez is awesome, though. By the way, she is. She's great. I couldn't tell she was painted. Maybe I don't I didn't know. either. I guess I, I guess a name to. like Goldstein, I should have raised an eyebrow. But I, you could. I, I mean, you don't have to be brown to be Mexican. Jesus. Yeah. True. Yeah, it's true. She does have. Uh, she does have Brazilian heritage, but she, her family is from Eastern Europe. Okay. Chad, recast somebody and put somebody else in their place. I sort of want Carl Weathers in a role that absolutely is not Carl Weathers. So hear Ooh. me out. You're excited right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to spin it. I want him as Gorman 
I want to see this big, tough guy that really should know his role freeze up and completely shut down of like, holy crap, what's happening? I would watch that in a heartbeat. Uh, help me out, Gorman. Is Gor- the- Gorman's the guy that's on the comms when they're all getting slaughtered and literally screaming at him. Oh, the, so he's he's the useless you know, yes. superior character. Well, I'm actually coming after uh, Gorman as well. So um, I, we all, you all, you had us going for a pump. I like yours better though. I mean, yeah, that, that's Carl Weathers. There is really good. I put Bill Pullman in there because I want to confuse people and, <laughs> and who Bill Pullman is. And I want them both in the same movie here at the same time. I'm already questioning my sanity. So um, I wanted to make people's heads explode. And I think he could do that job better. But Carl Weathers, now you got my attention. So. I just think Predator when I hear those clicks and things like I that. It. I love it when I think to replace somebody and think I'm so clever. And then Chad comes back and replaces them with somebody better. So. <laughs> Best shot of the movie, Steve. It's a pretty movie. It's a gorgeous movie. I mean, there's so many. You're looking over at the environmental tower that's fixing this stuff. I mean, I love the space shots they have in Alien and this movie. Uh, and then the later ones, of course, too. I think they're better than the Star Wars movies, quite frankly. But I really think the first time we see the Queen Alien with all of her eggs... And knowing everything that went into that and just that scene compared to the solitary pictures we had in Alien 1, that was the most visually striking for me, was the first time we see the queen with all her eggs. Yeah, and that was when they kept opening up the doors and letting all the fog out. (laughs) I can channel his frustration now, I agree wholeheartedly, but I hope the tea was good at least. (laughs) Chad, best shot. I went for kind of the Friday the 13th shot. So there's a xenomorph that rises up behind Newt from the water. And it's somewhat short, but it's terrific. This is mine as well. Really? Oh, it's very threatening. I mean, I just got done explaining to everybody, if you put a child in danger, like I'm at the edge of my seat going like, no, save that little girl. And um, that shot does that in spades for me. So that's, that's mine as well. If you make me pick a runner up, Watching the inner set of teeth come out of the alien's mouth right before he gets Paul Reiser is mighty satisfying. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, just imagine if you could have seen them come out the back of his head. How much more satisfying that would be. I will say watching Bishop get hit with that spike was like one of those. That was in the opposite direction, torn in half. You right. know, And the rip that, apart. Oh, Like the fact that that alien is there at that point. Wow. That was effective too. Which I did feel cheated because they showed the underbelly. When it okay, away. it's a very large alien. I'm glad you mentioned this. I did. <laughs> I did find myself wondering. They showed the underbelly. Like it, it can't it, be on the outside. It can't be on the outside. It has to be on the inside. Otherwise, it would have been sucked into the cold yeah, vacuum. Yeah, it couldn't space. have like held on to the landing gear. Like no, I I also am struggling with where this alien got <laughs> in. Now they all went to hypersleep. So once you're hypersleep, it can just be sitting over there drooling, waiting for their it's it's snack to wake up. But I mean, I I was sitting there like I'm gonna lay some eggs in you when you wake up. But like I mean, you're right. I, it's it's a, you want to surprise people, but I just didn't figure out where there was an opportunity for it to get in there. So the aliens didn't have to breathe; they could survive in a vacuum. 
right? Like even it's just when... too cold in space and stuff. I think like when the first one, like when Ripley shoots it out into space, I don't think it just like flies around until it lands on some inhabited planet and then does and carnage. I, that's a fifteen minute at the quickest, right? That's a fifteen minute flight. I don't know. These are. Uh... These are the kind of science fiction fan discussions that uh, I love. So hold on, weren't they? This is the part that always confused me. When they're flying in the lander, aren't they in the car? No, they're not in the car. No, because she. Yeah, this is this is a problem, and I'm going to call James Cameron and see what the answer is. James Cameron, you have made a masterpiece, but there's one thing. There's just one thing you overlooked, and Look, he'll hang up. The I phone. know it was 35 years ago. He might fix it. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, in all of his pickiness, said, hey, your star formations for the Titanic was wrong for that night. So Cameron went back and edited it. So there's a new edition of Titanic. Oh, sorry, Neil deGrasse Tyson like is just a total buzzkill. Like, Pluto's yes. not a planet. Like, your movie's not realistic. Gravity's not very realistic. I mean... This guy seems very pleasant when you see him on screen, but he is nothing but a giant wet blanket with everything that he says with his facts. Look, we all have, it's 2023. We all have to have a brand, right? His brand is, you know, nice, not choosing. What's a, it's not a choosing beggar. It's a nitpicky scientist. Yes. It's the same energy. You know what I mean? He's the worst, but actually guy yes. possible. Yes. I mean, That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have the, the stereotypical glasses where you push them up on your nose with one finger first and you go, mm, but mm, actually. Actually. So uh, these are some great tangents we're having today. Sorry for the edit on this one. Best scene, best scene, Chad. I really like the motion tracking scene. And there's so many moving parts to it. We have Vasquez. She is welding the door shut, which we find out is a horrible idea because the Xeno we have the tracker going off and Hudson is losing his mind and then the clicks come and we find out it's in the room and we have that call back to a stranger calls it's coming from inside the house so Ripley starts losing her mind a little bit saying this is impossible it's wrong and then we have Hicks pop open that drop ceiling that Steve says should not exist and the xenomorph is right there along with hundreds of its buddies. And chaos. Love it. If you learn nothing else from this movie, if you are in charge, Russell in particular, of designing a space station, I'm going to need you to make your air vents not large enough for aliens or humans to crawl through. And we're going to just get rid of drop ceilings, regardless of how metallic they are, and drop floors as well. My best scene is when Ripley is moving through the Queen's Hive with Newt. and. The queen's like looking at her like, I'm going to put some eggs in you. And she's like, "Mm, I'm thinking I'm going to burn up all your children. And then it's like, you better not. And then she's like, well, you better not kill this kid then. She calls off her to guard menu. Yeah, exactly. It shows you how smart the aliens are. And I love this this scene where, you know, Sigourney Weaver's face in this scene is like intensive. Like, this is what I talk about. Like, don't mess with Mama Bear. She's she's not kidding. Like, she's going to like, oh, burn every single one of your eggs. And, and then she like, does it anyway. And then she does it anyway. Well, but, and I love but, it. That's my favorite, like, Sigourney's hole in the entire movie. They've got a deal, right? There's a detente. Everybody's backing off. Sigourney's backing up. And then right beside her, that one egg. Yeah. Hours. It opens up. 
And the look that she gives the other mother in that scene is my favorite. She's like, mm, we had a deal. We had a deal and you broke it. And then all hell breaks loose. Yes. I love it. And this is really hard. I just got a shout out when she goes back, like when she gets on the ship, she goes back for new. She's like, how much time do we have? This is like 19 minutes. And he's like, that's, or she's like, that's enough. And, and runs back in. Oh, I have yeah. it written in my notes here. I tried twice to time the actual like part of the movie. I mean that the like 24, 19 minutes, whatever it took, I had to take 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's a big day station. You're right. 10 minutes would go by and it'd be like two minutes have passed. Uh, I really can't believe nobody picked the, the final showdown though. Well, so that would, if you come back to me real quick, I was going to say my favorite is the one immediately after yours, which is kind of a cop out. Cause I remember it from like every video you see and it's, she gets to the top. Bishop, you SOB, where are you? And then she sees the queen rise. And in that moment, I'm like, it's just the culmination of everything. I'm just, I like it even better than the final scene. It is a cop out, but it's so good when she's just like, I've done everything I can. There's, I'm literally helpless at this moment. Here comes the mama alien. And then the ship just rises behind her. That's that's that does it for me every time. That's a great one. Now, best wardrobe or makeup moment. It's amazing looking animatronic and costume work in this one. But Chad, what do you think is your best makeup or wardrobe moment? I do think it's really cool that each of the Marines, other than Hicks, because he was that last minute replacement, they all have custom armor. They've all got custom little decals and things going on. But what I particularly like is Vasquez's bandana. It makes her stand out. Without just being obnoxious or garish, it's it just seems a natural part of her character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Broadwater. How about you? What's your best wardrobe or makeup moment? So if we're if we're going that particular, and I just noticed this last night, right? So I've watched this movie a hundred times. Who's Vasquez's buddy? The real pale dude who also has the oh the guy who's uh, yeah who is that um, Jason? Whoever um, it is. His necklace always like I couldn't figure it out. I realized last night it's just bones. So right, like what you were talking about about how they were trained by real Marines and I think also SAS guys from England. And Apone, the actor that played him, was a real uh, Marine in Vietnam. Like this dude was like, I'm going to go full Marine from Vietnam and hung like dark finger bones from his neck now i didn't google this but that's just what i saw when i watched last night and i was like i've seen this movie a hundred times i've seen that necklace i never realized what it was those i those might be human bones (laughs) (laughs) and i love it but i I'm, i'm with you chad i think just the customization of their work and in order to answer this question i'm of course ignoring all the physical effects that the team did because that's just it's cheating that's stealing the show so sorry russell if i stole your thunder no and you know i actually feel like i've given the effects crew a lot of help here but i'm or uh, flowers here so i'm actually gonna say the body armor when they have to deconstruct it and the acid's eating through it in the elevator i really like the scene where michael bean has to shed his armor real fast and the acid's like chewing through it and he's injured through it it's a dramatic moment the armor looks great it adds to the tension of the moment so absolutely nice work there 
he lives, it reminds you like barely, it reminds you just how dangerous it is shooting these animals. I mean, that's always been a amazing dynamic in aliens. It's not in anything else though. I will criticize it a little bit and say they don't approach that dynamic with 100% consistency. No, they don't. <laughs> Ripley doesn't get splashed. Other people do ever. Yeah, I know. If you had to change one thing, Chad, what would it be? What bothers me every time I see this movie is we see Ripley spend so much time preparing. She's doing that awesome duct tape of the flamethrower, but then she gets in the elevator and at that point starts loading her cartridges. Why? It's a long elevator. You can tell it is. But with an alien in there, you don't know where it is. She's in a safe place prepping everything else. Prep your ammo. Well, she's loading the uh, uh, grenades. And there's like four or five in there. Yeah. Prep your gun while you're duct taping it. Chad's big on prep. I mean, hey, I mean, I was in Scouts with Broadway. We should know this. Be prepared. 14 minutes till total meltdown. That that is a good point, though. I, I've waffled back and forth in this argument. Steve just won me over with that. Fair enough. Ooh, that's two then, points. Two. Then why isn't she duct taping it in the elevator? She could do both. Either way. She's going to want to come too close. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my best, if I uh, recall, they're flying while she duct tapes it. So she's <laughs> literally do it like that That part. There's some things that could bother me. That part doesn't. And And just to skip in here. Just so we all know, not a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. The campy elements, the few little things that I see about it, are what makes it movie magic. And I so, just, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm going to take your acid con- consistency with acid blood uh, mm. as, as a good response. That that was a good, yeah. That's not the good. not the drop ceilings or the what do oh. you call them access floors? Oh yeah, okay. I'll, I'll take that too. Thank you. Yeah. So or the timing on the yes. I mean, but that's what makes it a movie, right? You got 30 seconds. So you say not a thing, but every movie has something. Like, yeah, it's got something. Like, yeah. That's what it makes it a movie. If It's not a movie if you don't have to temporarily suspend reality for a moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. That's why we love them. Because if they were that realistic, it wouldn't be. And, as and I think we're all saying the director's cut needs to be the. Absolutely. Um, now, I uh, might change one thing is the third Alien movie. That's fair. Is that cheating? No. No, but I need to go back and watch it again. That's what I realized. Now, best quote. Let's go with your best quote, Chad. Game over, man. Game (laughs) over. Like, what else could there be? That's it. I love it. I'm I'm guessing you you left uh, Get Away From Her, you unpleasant female character? Yes. I, I I didn't think it came off as well as, well, game over, man. Sigourney Weaver hates the way she says that. She I really, hate the way she says it. It's the worst part she does in the whole movie. Yeah, she actually says, why did I go up? She wanted to go down, and she wants to re-record it, like a, more of a growl. And, well, and Carrie Henn hates the, uh, they mostly come out at night. I love that. Mostly. I actually love that. Yeah, I, I like that more than the come out, you or, yeah, the B yeah. word. Yeah. I, I my favorite quote actually is a really tender moment between Newt and Ripley, and she says, "My mommy always says there is no monsters, no real ones, but there are, aren't there?" That yes. is, that's yes, there are. High quality. Why do they tell kids that? Well, most of the time it's true. Once, most of the time it's true. <laughs> you brought me back down to earth, Russell. That is, that is a real. That's, that's a hard hitting one. It's an emotional movie, 
in a movie that has a lot of action and those little emotional bits are what makes it great. And, and that is a big one. We've come full circle here. I don't know. Five star scale, half star animals, Broadwater. What's it going to be for aliens? Oh, it'll, it'll always be out of five stars for me personally, seven and a half. <laughs> Reasonable. With love. Yes. And uh, Chad, I know you're a fan of the first one. I do. The first one is my top 10 horror movies of all time. But don't make a mistake here. Don't don't overdo that. I'm not going to because this is five stars as well. And oh, thank goodness. This is one of the franchises where I'll entertain the argument that this is the best movie. For me, it personally isn't. I love the original. That just tends to be my thing. But whoever says this is the best movie, I understand and I support you. I love it. You have royalty. This is one of this franchise has one of the highest ranking horror movies for me. It has one of the highest ranking action movies for me. And that's a hard thing to do. This is five stars for me. So hold on. Did we all did we just give it a universal five out of five? Fifteen. That's fifteen. Yeah. It's been a tough year. We've we've had a couple juggernauts. Uh, Princess Bride is going to tear it up, too. Yeah, we covered A New Hope, too, which was nothing but a gush fest. So There are a few times in my life where I have felt uh, truly present in the moment and honored to be there, right? Graduating law school was a big one. Getting married, having children was one. This is top five, boys. Top five. Thank you for <laughs> allowing me to be here. I, I, and to say I was invited is an exaggeration. I may have aggressively pushed this on our friend Russell. I love that someone's excited to do this. I, lo- I love the enthusiasm. I love I love when somebody loves the movie this much, and it, yeah. just, it makes me happy. It's funny when someone comes on and like they have to hold back. Like I love this movie. It's it's been one of my favorites. And then they're like, "Well, it's not perfect. I'm going to give it four stars." And I'm like, "You love this movie." They try and go movie critic on it, which is not what we do. No. Uh, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I sure do. Get get out your red, white, and blue. And I don't mean your UK flag. Put those away. We're going to be celebrating the USA here with Independence Day. So here's three very patriotic options for you. The Patriot from 2000. A peaceful farmer, Benjamin Martin, is driven to lead the colonial militia during the American Revolution when a sadistic British officer murders his son. Option two, Pearl Harbor 2001. A tale of war and romance and mixed in with history. The story follows two lifelong friends and a beautiful nurse who are caught up in the horror of an infamous Sunday morning in 1941. And option three, The American President from 1995. A widowed U.S. president running for re-election and an environmental lobbyist fall in love. It's an all above board, but politics is perception and sparks fly anyway. I am going to go with the most historically accurate representation of the colonial wars, the war for American independence, the Patriot. Okay, get your hatchets out. It's going to be the Patriot. I knew I loved this podcast. God bless you, Chad. (laughs) I'm going to put my master's in early American history to good use for that movie. (laughs) Chad will be the uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson for that episode. I hope not. Thank you, Steve, for coming on. This has been a lot of fun, man. Bro, thank you. I This is your podcast. I'm just so happy to be here. This was more fun than I ever could have thought. I was so afraid I was unprepared. And then I was like, nah, man, you just got to love the movie. And you, you have preparing your whole life. Here. I, hope, uh, I hope you guys keep doing it. Call me anytime. I'd love to be here. All right. 
And thank you, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a subscribe on YouTube. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Emails at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support our show with money at Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. <laughs>